0: Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for December 5th, 2022 on your public radio station, KUAF. I'm Kyle Kellams. Later this hour, Matthew Moore will be here to begin a series of conversations with owners of independent bookstores in our region for ideas for the reader on your holiday list. Thank you for being with us to start another week of shows and thank you for your support of KUAF and public radio in your life. This week is our season of giving fundraiser at KUAF, we're planning on ending 2022 strong with your help. Our goal this week is to raise $50,000 to ensure we can continue to bring you the programming on air, through podcasts, via your smart speaker and online, the programming that you depend upon. You can make your end of year tax deductible contribution right now at support. KUAF.com. Through it all in 2022, KUAF has been your reliable source of quality journalism. Consider all that KUAF has reported on and informed you of this past year coverage of the ongoing landmark trial on Arkansas trans youth medical ban in Little Rock, the impact and implications of growth of our area on rural land and municipalities in our Report for America Rural Growth Series with our RFA reporter, Anna Pope, and ongoing coverage of COVID and flu cases in Arkansas as we move into flu season. This year, you turned to KUAF for facts and context for international and national news and also news from your community. Today, we're turning to you. Our contributing listeners make KUAF possible. You can make a year-end contribution to keep KUAF strong at supportkuaf.com. Russell Stroud, the newly elected mayor of Goshen, is openly gay. He's considered to be the first out LGBTQ plus mayor in Arkansas. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich spoke with Mayor-elect Stroud about both the personal and political to bring us his story.
1: Russell Stroud, born 1973, was raised in the small farming community of Goshen when the population numbered 600. It's located in northeastern Washington County. Goshen is his ancestral home.
2: I still see people that I've known all my life. um, And there are still, you know, I guess you'd call them, you know, legacy families that have been here for generations that are here in Goshen.
1: Stroud is not a farmer. However, he pursued a career in medicine.
2: So I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing in 1996 from the University of Arkansas. And... uh, Moved to Little Rock, came back to Fayetteville, moved to California, got a master's of science in nursing at Cal State L.A. in uh, California. So I am a uh, emergency department nurse practitioner, and I work with uh, Northwest Medical Systems.
1: At age 49, Stroud's now merging his professional life with his new political station, Mayor of Goshen, population 2300. I
2: really consider myself to be a fiscally conservative, socially liberal person. Uh, that, would, that would be kind of how I describe my personal politics. And as far as the party affiliation, I don't really uh, assimilate with any party. I think that right now our country needs to be independent and vote for the person that's going to do the best for our country, our community, our cities, our counties.
1: Stroud ran for mayor four years ago but lost. He's seasoned now, he says, packing a clear political agenda. One action item is to improve Goshen's main artery, State Highway 45. Town population has more than doubled data show over the past decade, drawn by attractive land values and vibes, but more commuters are causing congestion as well as wrecks and fatalities, Stroud says. So he plans to press the Arkansas Department of Transportation to widen Highway 45, adding turning lanes. He's also working on a comprehensive city development plan.
2: Goshen does have a two-acre minimum for their uh, construction. So the lots are big, tend to be you know, nice big homes here in Goshen. Um, there's been a lot of wealth moved into Goshen from when I was a, a kid growing up as a poor farm kid this did used to be a true farming community where people had, you know, dairy farms, people had cattle farms, people raised sheep and goats, and, and you know, there were uh, pig farmers that we knew. And, uh, and that, a lot of that has changed.
1: Goshen is a growing bedroom community from the growing Northwest Arkansas Metroplex.
2: And I think that one of the things we really are going to have to do is we're going to have to get a topographical map. We've got to look at all of our arterials, all of our streets, all of our bridges and roads and say, look where the future of this city is going. And how are we going to make sure that it becomes safe and accessible with infrastructure? So I think infrastructure is going to be a huge part of, you know, moving the city forward forward.
1: Stroud is building collaborative, respectful relations with Goshen's current city council, and will build on existing municipal projects. The province of outgoing mayor Kathy Oliver, he says,
2: "I helped Mayor Oliver for a year, doing um, basically street superintendent, streets, bridges. Um, you know, working with her in the city. So I kind of know the city functions, the city budget, the the uh, council members."
1: This election cycle, Stroud ran against Sean Mayfield. He won by 20 votes, 518 to 498.
2: I had a feeling it was going to be very close. I did not realize it would be 20 votes close. (laughs) So I, I was due to go to a conference with my husband in Louisiana. He's a member of the American Psychiatric Association. And I had canceled that to go out and campaign because I felt like we had a lot of momentum and i wanted to reach people that maybe i hadn't reached yet so we did some door to door campaigning knocking on doors i cooked like 400 cookies with my girls chocolate chip cookies and we put those in bags and handed those out so i think that i think that helped
1: stroud says he's attracting supporters from both the right and the left reflecting a new nationwide trend americans this election cycle exhausted by extremist rhetoric are casting votes for stability and calm. A potential campaign trigger, however, could have been Sean Mayfield's political motto, continued growth, respecting tradition, a reference to conservative family values. But Stroud says Mayfield ran a clean campaign.
2: There was no mudslinging. There was no attempting to try to undermine either one you know, of our uh, campaigns. And I think that if he would have been elected, I think he would have done you know, a good job at the best of his abilities. So, yeah, I think it was a very clean race. But I got a lot of conservative support as well. <laughs> so, you know, I had a lot of people that were very, you know, Republican. Um, supporting, you know, the Republican parties all across the board that supported me. And I think that that has to do more with who I am than a party affiliation. And this is a nonpartisan race. It was a nonpartisan election. I think people always do look at the party when they think of how they want to vote. But I think it's also looking at what the person you're voting for is standing for and what they're planning to do.
1: Stroud is raising a family in Goshen, so wants the best for them, as well as for his constituents.
2: My husband and I met in 2004, and then we legally got married in New York in 2011. Um, We moved back to Arkansas in 2012, uh, largely because of my father's health, but because we wanted to have kids. Um, We did surrogacy. We have beautiful twin uh, five-year-old girls um, who are in kindergarten and it takes a lot of our time, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. I enjoy being a dad. Um, so yeah, we've uh, been together a long time and have a, a really good, healthy relationship and our kids are wonderful.
1: Like any mainstream family in Goshen, an idyllic rural town, rolling forests and farms where locals traditionally fish and float at twin bridges near the confluence of the white river in Richland Creek. As Mayor Stroud says, he will work to grow commerce and industry, but also aims to transform Goshen into a recreational destination.
2: The regional, you know, trail system that we have, the Greenway trails, I love. I think they're wonderful. Um, the girls and I enjoy riding the bikes and the bike trailer there. But you know, we're not connected to that. And so, you know, if there's money available and we can be a part of that, getting connected, I would love to do that. In the meantime, you know, Goshen has acquired 100 acres that they've now opened a park, Mill Branch Park. And so I wanna continue working with the park department with, that we have, Parks and Recs, and help them to facilitate improving that park, opening up more trails, being able to develop that for the community.
1: With a background in medical administration and leadership, Stroud has skills in workforce development and retention, which he will use to beef up local law enforcement, which struggles with turnover, he says. Stroud also plans to leave a legacy, building a new city hall, an acreage recently purchased adjacent to Goshen's community center. He says an expense supported by a growing tax base in town.
2: So at this point, we really depend on the millage of the homeowners and the property owners in our in our city. And that amounts to $1.3 to $1.5 million annually, which is not a big budget when you look at a city. And you know, you have a very affluent city that I think our average income is about $146,000 a year. So it's a very affluent city with people that are going to expect a great infrastructure. And I really want to get with a city planner. I want to look at where we are now and where we're going to be in the next 15 to 20 years.
1: Stroud envisions Goshen having an attractive commercial center as well.
2: You are right. Goshen is a bedroom community, but I do think that it would be nice to have more restaurants. I would love to get a grocery store. Um, I've contacted Trader Joe's. I haven't heard back from them. Um, But if we could get something like that, I, I think that it would even draw people from all around to come to Goshen to shop there. I have that maybe my opponent doesn't. I have connections with the landowners that have owned this land for a long time. And so, you know, some of that can be looked at and developed in a really respectful and thoughtful way so that we are respecting those traditions and not trying to make this into a little Fayetteville. I want it to be Goshen.
1: We queried the Arkansas Municipal League for this report to confirm if Stroud is, in fact, the first openly gay mayor in Arkansas. Executive Director Mark Hayes didn't know. He says the league doesn't keep such records, but demographic data counts two lesbians were elected in recent years to the Arkansas legislature, along with several gay and trans city council, commission, and quorum court members in northwest Arkansas. So, it appears that Mayor-elect Russell Shroud may be making history and likely more cookies to serve to his new City Hall colleagues. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. And still
0: to come on today's Ozarks at Large, Matthew Moore talks with the owners of Two Friends Bookstore in Bentonville. We're curious about what they're reading and recommending for holiday bookgiving. It's the first conversation in a series this month with local bookstore owners. That's ahead on today's. Ozarks at Large.
3: It's time for the annual KUAF and Friends holiday giveaway. This is your chance to win a gift from one of many generous KUAF underwriters. Participants include Fossil Cove Brewing Company, Dixon Street Bookshop, and more. Winners announced Friday, December 9th during the noon edition of Ozarks at Large. Details and registration at KUAF.com.
0: This is Ozarks at Large. Randy Dixon from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History standing by with a brand new Prior center profile, we continue with our look back at the Whitewater investigation. Today, a central figure in that investigation, Ken Starr. We go to the archives in just a moment on Ozarks at Large. This is KUAF's end of year season of giving fundraiser. And through it all in 2022, we've not only been your reliable source of quality journalism, we've also been your source for analysis, conversation, and connection in our locally produced podcasts as well. Consider all that KUAF has informed you and expanded your understanding in this past year. Conversations from local musicians and restaurant owners and chefs on building community through art, music, food, and creativity in the Lunch Hour Conversation podcast, including Mockingbird Kitchen, The Farmer's Table, Eat My Catfish, Island Vibes, Secondhand Smoke, Woodstone Pizza, and more. We've also provided information on hundreds of local nonprofits' good work in our community on the community spotlight series heard every weekday morning at 6:31 and 8:31 hosted by Pete Hartman. This year you turn to KUAF for facts and context for international national news and also news from right here where you live. And this week including right now we're turning to you. Our contributing listeners make KUAF possible. You can make a year-end contribution right now to keep KUAF strong. You can make that contribution At supportkuaf.com, your tax-deductible contribution helps keep your public radio station strong and here for you. Supportkuaf.com, the amount of the contribution, completely up to you. And thank you. The president had to make a decision. He could choose truth or he could choose deception. The president chose deception. This is Ozarks at Large. We're listening to archives from the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy Dixon is our guide to these archives. Who did we just hear? Randy, welcome.
4: Thank you very much. Good to see you, Kyle. Good to see you. Uh, That was Kenneth Starr. Uh, If you've been listening the last few weeks to this segment, we've been talking about Whitewater and all the people, mainly the Arkansans who've been wrapped up in all of this, And we talked about Jim Mm McDougal. We talked about Susan McDougal. A while back, we profiled Webb Hubble, who was involved. And so now we're going to talk about the key figure at the center of all of this, and that's the special prosecutor who was assigned to investigate the then-first couple, Bill and Hillary Clinton.
0: That's right. And, and and Ken Starr did become a household
4: name. And much hated, <laughs> at least in Arkansas, yeah. by, by many of – well, not, they weren't even necessarily Clinton fans uh, just because of – well, you know, his – a lot of people questioned his investigative tactics. Uh, they were very aggressive – Um, He disrupted a lot of people's lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we're going to talk about him and we're going to talk about how his office and his people, who a lot of people say were the ones responsible um, for all of this controversy. Um, You know, it it started the original charge of— uh, star in his office was to investigate a failed savings and loan in White County, which right. was Whitewater. And right to just catch everybody up. Jim and Susan McDougall were real estate developers, friends of the Clintons. Back in the seventies, they got them to invest in this residential development called Whitewater. That never came to be. Never came to be, lost money, but there was the talk of of fraud. So by the time it ended, uh, it went from Whitewater and investigated the president's personal life. It was a direct line, yeah. Right, and we will look at how it got from A to about (laughs) W— Uh, during a course of, of a few years so um, well let's go into the KTV archives and well here's President Clinton new President Clinton he'd been in office about a year when this investigative investigation started and so this is what he had to say at the beginning
0: there will not be a cover-up there will not be an abuse of power in this office this and there is no credible charge that I violated any law, even way back in the dark ages of <laughs> years ago when this happened. If the, if I did something wrong, it will come out in the special counsel. They will find the truth. Let them do it. I doubt he had any idea that the digging was going to go on as long and deep as it did. And boy, did
4: they dig. Yeah. yeah. Um, so by 1996, they had brought up many, many, many things. But the first lady, Hillary Clinton, actually went before the grand jury. And she was asked about, among other things, some billing records from... She was working at the Rose Law Firm at the time of all of this whitewater business and investments. And she was asked about that. And this is what's strange, is there were billing records that mysteriously appeared in a box in the White House. And they, the prosecutors had been looking for them for quite some time. And uh, Carolyn Huber, who was an assistant to uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, had found these and had put them in a box and forgotten about them, she said. And so then they come to light. And um, Hillary, uh, I can remember she came out. She had been in there for quite some time because it was dark outside. This is in the grand jury. Yes, and, you know, the press had been waiting outside for quite some time. and, And this is what Hillary Clinton said after her grand jury
5: testimony. I was glad to have the opportunity to tell the grand jury what I have been telling all of you. I do not know how the billing records came to be found where they were found. uh, But I am pleased that they were found because they confirm what I have been saying. Well I looked forward to being able to tell the grand jury um, what I know, um, to be able to answer their questions. Um, I, like everyone else, would like to know the answer about how those documents uh, showed up after all these years. It would have been certainly to my advantage in trying to bring this uh, matter to a conclusion if they had been uh, found several years ago. So I tried to be as uh, helpful as I could uh, in their uh, investigation efforts. So
4: this
0: is 1996?
4: Yes. All
0: right, so there have already been convictions oh, in the
4: Whitewater yeah. case. Oh, yeah. Jim and Susan McDougal, uh, then-Governor Jim Guy Tucker... Uh, Former Associate Attorney General Webb Hubble um, Had all been convicted of fraud in the Whitewater case And as I'd mentioned earlier You know, many questioned Starr's tactics In dealing with suspects and potential witnesses Uh, Some agreed to, you know, cooperate Jim McDougal Testify Jim, but his wife Did not Right As we heard the last couple of weeks Right, and she spent uh, almost two years in jail just for contempt of court for not for not talking. Um, now, Steve Smith, we talked to him a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a communications professor here at the university. And so part of what he talked about to me was um, his experience with Starb and the grand jury, but also uh, his friend, Susan McDougall.
6: I was talking about my experiences with the Independent Counsel and
4: and how how
6: they operated and stuff and um how you know her her argument was that they were trying to get her to lie and I said well I, you know I had the same conundrum really that I had had agreed to cooperate with them and then they gave me a script that they wanted me to read to the grand jury for my testimony it was had a lot of falsehoods. <laughs> And so what I was, did you do? well, I, I, I refused to, to do it. I mean, I, I wasn't going to add perjury to everything else.
0: <laughs> it's an interesting, to, to hear Stephen Smith talk about how he thought, well, and then this sheet's given to him.
4: Yeah. I, I mean, mean, because what they had accused him of was a misdemeanor. It wasn't a big deal. And, uh, well, We're going to hear a little explanation here, a little news analysis uh, from a friend of mine. Uh, If you're you're a news junkie, you know the name David Schuster. He's been a reporter and an anchor on MSNBC, Fox News, uh, Al Gore's Current TV. And now he's a syndicated news talk radio host. But in the 90s, he was a new reporter uh, at KETV, and I mean, White Water was just barely heard of. Right, and he came to us and said, "I really want to cover this." Well, most of the other reporters didn't want to because it was complicated, and, and yeah, and to a lot of reporters, boring. But and there was no guarantee it was going to have legs. Right, and he, you know, he had an interest in white collar crime. He, as a matter of fact. Uh, The next year, he won uh, a regional Emmy for his investigative reporting. But he volunteered to cover Whitewater from the start. And so I talked to him last week. And here's his analysis of those caught up in the whitewater web.
6: So whenever they would get a plea deal, and inevitably, look, you put a giant magnifying glass on anybody, on anybody, and you're going to be able to find something in their life that may have been embarrassing or maybe a jaywalking or something that they did that might have been against the law. And that's how Star's team operated. And so they put this huge magnifying glass, a searing magnifying glass in everybody, and inevitably. People would say, "Okay, yeah, maybe I didn't give the right assessment value for this property. Maybe I put in a, uh, something in a document that I wasn't supposed to put in. Uh, I didn't check something." So people would plead guilty to this, you know, piddly misdemeanor stuff. But then what they would do is in star's office would say, "Okay, now you're going to you're going to participate. You're going to go in front of the grand jury. Here's the information we need from you about Jim Guy Tucker or about Hillary Clinton." And they would basically say, "Here are the." key points that you need to tell the grand jury about. And sometimes these defendants wouldn't know what Star's office is talking about. But Star Whether his, they
4: were true or not.
6: Whether it's true or not. That Starr had his Star was convinced solely based on documents or based on checking accounts that all oh, Susan McDougall must know, you know, she must have told Hillary Clinton about this three hundred thousand dollar fraudulent loan. She must have. Well, I mean, Susan Medjugorje, no, she she didn't. And Hillary Clinton said, I didn't know anything about it. But Starr was absolutely convinced that, of course, Hillary Clinton had to have known. So it was rather than sort of just collecting the information, letting the chips fall where they may, I think in some cases there was sort of a predetermined outcome that Starr and his staff wanted, and they wanted that to be presented to the grand jury.
0: That's uh, David Schuster, who's been a news reporter for several decades now.
4: That's right. That's right. Um, but let's go back to the, the KATV archives. And this is Kenneth Starr outside the courthouse after, I'm not sure which one, but one of his convictions, because he's talking about not only the grand jury, but a, a trial jury. So here's Kenneth Starr. And that it required dutiful attention to their solemn
0: obligation and their solemn oaths And they lived up to those oaths today. They lived up in a statement as well that indicated that they prayerfully sought assistance, divine assistance in their deliberations. They have obviously taken care with each of the counts and evaluated each count with care. So our compliments to this very dutiful group of people from the great state of Arkansas. Until I had heard this cut, I had forgotten about how Kenneth Starr talked and how he framed a, a lot of his conversations, and they were very uh, a lot of imagery with religion.
4: Yes. I mean, you notice he, he talked about prayer mm-hmm. as far as the jurors, and I think he said divine assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, so... A couple of weeks ago, I talked to Susan McDougall. We, we heard her the last couple of weeks, um, and she was, of course, a key figure in all this. Um, she was convicted of fraud and sp- spent that time in jail for contempt for not testifying to the grand jury. But I asked her, what, what did you take away personally from Kenneth Starr? What did you think of him uh, after all the dealings and all this time— Uh, these decades to sort of think about it. And in reflection, she found it, I guess, hypocritical. Yeah, I think you could say that. For Starr to talk about religion when he's discussing, you know, various court cases.
2: The thing that stands out the most for me about him was his talking about religion during the trial. You know, he'd stand out in front of the courthouse and say things like, you know, I try to say this prayer, oh God, let me do justice today when I go into the courtroom. And uh, Just talking about religion, his religious faith in God um, during a time when the people that he is prosecuting don't have that luxury to go in front of the cameras and talk about their faith and their religion. So it really seemed that Kenneth Starr thought that he had the corner on his faith and
0: loving God. Susan McDougall, during a conversation with you, and by the way, she is the director of pastoral care and a grief counselor at UAMS in Little Rock now.
4: That's right. That's right. Um, and she's very happy, uh, en- enjoys what what she's doing, she, and it's important what she does. Um, so she was talking about the, the religion aspect, and so I asked um, our former reporter, David Schuster, about that.
6: He was so sweet in his religion, and he was such a sort of moralistic kind of guy. He saw everything as <clears throat> it's good versus bad. He was incapable of seeing nuance. Uh, and, you know, there, it's nice sometimes to be around people who always have this unshakable faith, I suppose. I mean, Ken Starr was polite. He was kind to me and kind to other journalists. He was sort of a, a nice guy, and clearly he was very comfortable in his own beliefs. But the problem is is that when you're dealing with a political position which this was politics is far more sort of nuanced justice is not necessarily black and white and so ken starr he would come out of the courthouse and black and white oh thank you that i'm so glad that the jury prayed on this decision and it's you know it's a testament to our faith that they're taking such a holy approach to this but there's nothing particularly religious or faith-based about investigating somebody for white collar fraud. Uh, and so it just felt like he was mixing apples and oranges. He was taking his own sort of personal faith and applying it broadly to everything he was doing when, you know, what was going on in the courthouse, what this investigation about really had nothing to do with people's faith or their belief in God. It had to do with, okay, did they write a bunch of hot checks to prop up a savings and loan? Did certain people know about these hot checks and these bad, you know, bad documents And, you know, you can, to to me, when Ken Starr would mix up this stuff, when he would take his sort of faith and apply to everything, it struck me as this guy is really, um, has no idea what he's doing, that he doesn't know what he's doing in terms of his investigation, that he really does seem fairly ignorant about prosecutions and about justice because he's taking his sort of Sunday school sort of demeanor and applying it to what's happening in the courthouse. And it just struck so many of us as, Again, another indication of how he was not the best person for the job. He was not suited for this gig. He was suited to teach Sunday school or be a Sunday school principal or maybe be a university administrator like he was. He was not suited to be a federal prosecutor in charge of a very complex, highly charged investigation.
4: So you're saying he was simply naive, maybe?
6: Yeah, oh, Ken, Starr was, that's, that's I'm looking for. Ken Starr was incredibly naive, incredibly naive about how I think the justice system really worked. I think he was incredibly naive about what he was doing in Arkansas and the lives that he was disrupting. And he was incredibly politically naive. He was not a politically astute guy. And his naivete, I think, is what came back to hurt him in a huge way because, again, the case did not follow a simple black and white sort of script. It was far more sort of nuanced. It was far more complex. But had the was not capable of seeing the complexities in a lot of this. And I think that naivete came back to haunt him. Let me ask.
0: I mean, I'm not going to just wade in over my head here. I'm going to cannonball in over my head. <laughs> but one thing, when you are a prosecutor, isn't this the stand, a standard method of operation? You get the littler fish and you try to get them to turn on or, or give you information about the bigger fish and you keep working that way. Yeah. And also, and that's and he ju- he would always justify that right. And also, I don't think I've in the criticism of Kenneth Starr, I've never heard anyone think say they thought he wasn't right. In other words, Ken Starr thought he was on the right track.
4: Yes, he was always convinced. Right, uh, and like David said, you know, he had these aggressive prosecutors in his office and i didn't realize this till i started researching it he was doing this job part-time he was still involved with his law firm mm. up in dc so i think it was almost not hands-off but i don't know that he was that involved and relied on these young right aggressive prosecutors to handle it and i think you know I don't think, but I heard from many people that they thought they were just out of control and he couldn't and didn't control them.
0: All right. Now, you've got one more cut here that brings up a name we haven't mentioned yet in the right. past few weeks. So
4: let's let Starr talk. And he here, he, this is a couple of years after the the probe ended. And he's talking about the justification of, of him, like we talked about widening the net and uh, increasing the, the focus of the investigation.
0: Look, I thought I would be through in six months because what can be so serious about a failed land deal in Arkansas that had been investigated before? But what one finds out in getting into an investigation is, oh my word, there are different avenues that come to you. Ultimately, the Monica Lewinsky phase, which came to us as a complete surprise, Attorney General Reno authorized that. So we just don't know. We're behind the veil of ignorance, uh, Jake.
4: And that's the crucial
0: name, mm-hmm. Monica Lewinsky. And, and there is a through line to the beginning of the very first investigations into Whitewater to that.
4: Right. I mean, it's, it started with the land deal and ended with Monica Lewinsky. And, and an so- impeachment trial and an impeachment trial. So, I hate to do it, but I'm going to have to drag this out for another week. Is that okay? Well, look, compared to how long Whitewater went in real time. that's true. (laughs) Hey, this is a drop in the
0: bucket. Randy Dixon is with the David Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Randy, as always, thank
4: you. Thank you very much. I'll see you next week. SONA, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, continues its main stage season Saturday, January 7th at Walton Arts Center
0: performing William Grant Still's Mother and Child, Leonard Bernstein's Chichester Psalms, featuring the Sona Singers, and Henrik Gorecki's Symphony of Sorrows, featuring soprano Miriam Khalil. This emotional program evokes the love that exists across time between a mother and her child. Tickets at sonamusic.org. This is Ozarks at Large, and this is 91.3 KUAF, your public radio station, where we bring you News, conversations, and information from around the world, around the country, and during this show every day from around your community. We've been able to bring you Ozarks at Large for one hour every day for the past 12 plus years because of your support. News from Northwest Arkansas, the Arkansas River Valley, Eastern Oklahoma, and Southern Missouri that you can't find or hear anywhere else. We're able to do that because of your continued support. And this is our season of giving year-end fundraiser at KUAF. This is the week that we make sure that we're going to be strong for you in the next year. And we know we'll be here for you in 2023 because we can rely on you. The vast majority of the operating budget that pays for the computers and the microphones and the batteries and the salaries of the people that work here at KUAF, the vast majority comes from you and listeners just like you. You can make your tax-deductible year-end contribution right now at supportkuaf.com. And once again, for this season of Giving Fundraiser, we're offering a special gift to you as a thank you for your contribution. For a gift of $120 or $10 a month, you can request a special KUAF Live Volume 5 double CD, a collection of 25 live performances from Ozarks at Large and from The Lunch Hour, our monthly concert series that takes place right here. In the lobby, the Carver Center for Public Radio. This CD has music from Honey Collective, Old Man Saxon, Hall, Pat Ryan Key, Jess Harp, Adam Fawcett, Pura Coco, Bang, Modeling, More, and many others. They all make great holiday gifts for loved ones who also love KUAF or for yourself. You can't get this collection of these musicians and their live performances anywhere else. So you can support all the news, the community, and music that you get from KUAF all year long. You can give right now at support.com. KUAF.com, and thank you.
3: This is Ozarks at Large. Joining me to talk about holiday gift guides and books, we have Rachel Stuckey-Slayton and Monica Diodati from Two Friends in Bentonville. Ladies, thank you so much for joining us today.
7: Thanks for having us.
3: All right. Well, let's just jump into it here. It's the holiday season. It's a great time to give books. When we've talked in the past, we've kind of tried to give a little bit of something to everybody, kind of, you know, everyone's got that friend that's a little hard to buy for, and books tend to be a good way to show what you're interested in, to find interest in your friends as well. So uh, I'm excited to hear what uh, the two of you have to offer here.
7: Yeah, I'm excited to talk about books. It's my favorite subject.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, Rachel, let's start with you then.
7: Okay, so... um Last year, I I talked to you about books, both in terms of books that you might want to give and books that you might want to read during the holiday season. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of sticking with that vein. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so let's talk about books that might be fun to read during the holiday season. Okay. There's so many classic children's books out there for the holidays. And um, this is a new release. Um, The author is Mina Harris and the illustrator is Keisha Morris. It's called The Truth About Mrs. Claus. And yeah, ooh. And uh, (laughs) it's about a little girl who. Lives in the North Pole, and she comes from a long tradition of teddy bear makers. And she loves the, you know, the family tradition aspect of teddy bear making, but the actual labor of making teddy bears, she's not so much into. Sure, yeah. And she's feeling really torn because, like, she she doesn't want to betray her family, but she really doesn't want to make teddy bears. (laughs) And so she has this heart to heart with Mrs. Claus, who Hmm. turns out has secrets of her own Mm. and uh, needs help from this little girl to uh, accomplish her mission and so it's this really lovely story about like um finding your own way while honoring your family and your your past and your traditions yeah um and also i think it's a lovely story about a kids asking for help and also adults asking for help yeah and um there's also this, like, kind of, like, feminist empowerment aspect to it. So, anyway, it's a really fun, really cute uh, Christmas book.
3: It's a look into who actually wears the overalls in the Claus family. <laughs>
7: <Right>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then I – so, another classic um, – holiday activity for a bunch of readers is to pick up a holiday romance and so i have one that i have not read yet but i'm looking forward to reading mm-hmm. quick aside for those of you who love holiday movies i'm gonna have i have a hot take okay Ooh. which is that i think the family man starring the indomitable Nicolas cage is a fantastic christmas movie <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it <laughs> And I think it's it, like it's playing on these this like trope of holiday stories of like the path not taken, which mm-hmm. I feel like started out with Dickens, you know, with the, the Christmas Carol. Sure. And, you know, like what could have been. And so this this book that I'm suggesting is is called The Holiday Swap by Maggie Knox. And it's about these identical twins, uh, one of whom is this like hot shot culinary re- reality TV show competition judge. And the other is like hustling in the family bakery in the small hometown Mm. so it's the you know big city small town it's the uh they they're both stressed and so they're like you know what we should switch lives. <laughs> and so they switch places and, you know, what's going to happen now? Are they going to find true love? Are they going to find happiness? Yeah. We all know that they will. Obviously. And the pleasure is in the journey finding that happiness. So Absolutely. I'm looking forward to reading The Holiday Swap by Maggie Knox and I encourage all of you listeners out there to do the same. And then in terms of gifting, there are, it can be tricky to give books as gifts, like you said. It's it it's kind of specific to what you like, and knowing exactly what your your loved ones tastes can be a little bit tricky. So I will say gift cards are always a good option, mm-hmm. but some crowd pleasers, if you will. So Kevin Wilson is uh, a fantastic author. He wrote um, like the cult classic book called uh, Nothing to See Here. And um, he just had a new book come out called Now is Not the Time to Panic. And it's fantastic. It's super fun, very funny, but also like engages with really interesting ideas about like artistic ownership and mm, mass hysteria. Mm. (laughs) It's just like coming-of-age story set in the South, and he just is so pitch-perfect in describing these little scenes that happen in, like, small-town middle America, middle South America. Um, That it's just delightful and also, like, really, really interesting. I listened to this on audiobook, which is Mm. also a fantastic way to go about... Reading books, slash gifting books, Libro FM is a fantastic resource for those of you who are wanting to do an Amazon alternative that also supports independent bookstores. Mm-hmm. Can't recommend Libro FM enough. But now is not the time to panic. By Kevin Wilson is really great. Um, for nonfiction lovers, uh, I would suggest "I'm Glad My Mom Died" by Jeanette McCurdy. So, are you familiar with who she is?
3: Yeah, yeah. I grew up just a little too old to watch iCarly, but uh, I like I knew who she was. And when I heard about this book for the first time, I simultaneously maybe you had this experience too of just like I was surprised and simultaneously not surprised.
7: Right. Yeah. Exactly. It. It like. You, you you want for things to maybe be different, but you're not surprised when they're not. Yeah. But you still want to read about it. Yeah. So, um, she was a child actress, and she came of age in like you know, the it was Disney Channel, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Disney, Disney World. Yeah. Um, and so this is about that, and also a, for her very complicated relationship with her mother. But she's very funny
5: mm-hmm.
7: and uh, a really like quick like the, the sentences move quickly but in a way that's really fun to read about really hard things. Yeah. <laughs> um so this book literally cannot stay on our shelves long. I I think the longest of this book, Monica, how long do you think that one copy has stayed on our shelf? Maybe three days. Yeah. It's it hard moves to keep stocked. <laughs> so fast. So I think that this would be a fun crowd pleasing gift. If you're like, I'm not sure, but like I know my friend is into pop culture Great. This is like the perfect gift for them. Hmm. And are you familiar with who Tim Ernst is?
3: The name sounds familiar, but I can't place it.
7: So he is a photographer and guidebook writer okay. here in Arkansas. Oh, okay. He's retiring from like producing photography books, but he's sort of legendary in the state with like capturing the Ozarks and the Washtaws mm. and the Delta, really like getting out there in nature and, and capturing these scenes that you just don't really think are possible here in Arkansas. We got to sell books at one of his um, book tour events here at the public library in Bentonville. And his most recent and his last picture book is called Arkansas's Greatest Hits. And it spans his photography work from like the early 70s through today. Mm. And it's really cool to see like how his work has changed, how it's not changed. Um, and this whenever I flip through the, the pages of this book, I think to myself like, wow. I can't believe I get to live in such a beautiful mm. state, and I I feel like this would be a great gift to give somebody. If you live here and you have you know friends and family that don't live here and are like Arkansas, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is a great book to give them because it's like it's so beautiful mm-hmm. here, and um, it really showcases the the natural beauty of the natural state. So Arkansas's Greatest Hits is his newest one, but really any of them would be excellent gifts. We've got some some young people in our lives, mm-hmm. so I have a couple suggestions for them, too. So, if you have little kids, like elementary age kids, mm-hmm. Dave Pilkey is probably a household name in in your family. He wrote the Dogman Comics and uh, the Cat Kid Comic Club series. So these are graphic novels that are mostly targeted towards like early readers and early to middle grade readers. And it's nice because it really can span a pretty wide age range from like five to I would say 11 Mm. maybe and Cat Kid Comic Club has a new book coming out on November 29th and I'm very excited about it I know that a lot of uh you know fourth graders are going to be very (laughs) excited about it because it's the language is simple enough where if you're kid is a little bit older they can move through it pretty quickly and really feel like oh yes like I just read a whole book in one sitting that's awesome and I was laughing out loud and then like your younger readers there's so many context clues that it makes them feel more confident I think in Mm. their reading abilities to be like you know sounding out the words but they see all these context clues and it's funny it's very much like a, a little kid's humor sensibility and yeah there's like Illustration instructions in the back, mm. and it's they're really fun, and really cute, and I'm I'm excited about that one.
3: Okay, Monica, let's hear what you have here.
7: Yeah, I mean I agree that I find it books are a great gift, but
8: also a difficult gift because it's so personal, like what you like to read. Um, but so I usually gravitate towards like a special edition of something that uh, is like a classic, or I know somebody's already read that doesn't have a edition or like, like just a pretty book or something that might surprise someone and have like a broad appeal um, no matter what their interests are. Um, so I picked three that I think I probably would give to anyone <laughs> because I just think they're all really special. The first is The Annotated Arabian Nights by Yasmin Steele. It's a new translation of um, the 1001 Tales of the Arabian Nights And it is this huge kind of like coffee table edition that is beautifully illustrated. And it's a female translation from an Arabian poet. And so it's just like really lyrically done. And I think it would appeal to a broad range of ages. And also if somebody's already read it, it's, um, you know, this kind of nice giftable edition um, that you can pick one up, read a story, read it to your kids, I would say, Maybe like thirteen up because some of the tales can get kind of violent, but mm. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, kind of a cool um, gift edition of The Arabian Nights. The second one I'm going to recommend is Nina Simone's Gum by Warren Ellis. It is this really interesting um, nonfiction tale of someone. He's actually a member of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, mm. and he was at a Nina Simone show. And at the end he grabbed a piece of her gum that she had spit out from the stage. (laughs) And it's this kind of journey that you go on with him and this piece of gum. And it kind of becomes, I love when the story kind of starts with something super specific and uses it as like a window into bigger ideas and feelings and um, like meaning. And so It's a book that does that really well and kind of explores the meaning we attach to objects, um, dives into like music and art and obsession. And so I think it would appeal to really anyone who loves music, but also anybody who can appreciate art, um, creativity. It's a really like joyful, um, romantic, like in a broad sense of like, just the beauty that the world can offer.
3: It's giving me vibes of like uh like the indie rock star version of the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, right? It's yeah. not really about <laughs> yeah. the pants. It's not really about yeah. the gum. It's about the journey that the gum takes us on.
2: Yeah,
1: exactly.
8: <laughs> so that's Nina Simone's Gum by Warren Ellis. And then the third book is kind of for food lovers. I feel like around the holidays everybody's um, you know, mm-hmm. enjoying a lot of great food with family. It's a collection of essays called My First Popsicle by Zoja Mamet. And she has a bunch of different writers contributing that include Ted Danson, Ruth Reichel, Rosie Perez. So it's people in the food world, but also a bunch of different celebrities who have um, contributed a story around a specific dish or food item and um, like the memories and feelings that it evokes. And so it's kind of just a warm, cozy uh, collection that I think would be great to read and to gift around the holidays when everybody's like enjoying these big meals with family. Because I, that's one of my favorite parts of the holidays, just sharing a meal with people that I love. And whenever I read um, food writing, that it kind of transports me to that kind of magical
3: place. You had me at Ted Danson. That, that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's all it took for me. Um, before, we, before we go here, let's talk a little bit. Uh, I don't know that if we have talked about since the last time, certainly since the last time we talked about the holiday gift guide, uh, you guys have moved. Um, can have. you talk a little bit about your new location and and kind of the stuff that you're able to do now that you're in a space that's larger than my studio office? <laughs> <laughs>
7: turns out you can do a lot more in a yeah. space that's larger than your studio office. Yeah, surprisingly. <laughs> so we're, uh, we moved over to 8th Street Market, uh, which is basically at the intersection of Southeast 8th Street and J in downtown Bentonville. And uh, we're in Suite 47 in between Hillfolk and Markham and Fitz, if that means anything to anybody. Mm-hmm. Basically, you look outside of our, our front door and we can see the momentary. So yeah, it's been awesome and we can we now have space for inside things to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we've got a slew of book clubs, we have a monthly open mic
3: there's a there's a really delightful little kids corner that you've got there yes. um, and, and I got to go recently with uh, a friend and and their little two-year-old mm-hmm. um, and we just sat and she sat on my lap it was the first time she like really was terribly interested in me uh-huh. <laughs> she sat on my lap and I read like 17 books to her and I was just like this is perfect I wouldn't have been able to do this yeah. in the old space and so just totally. like a space where a kid can feel confident just like you know barreling through Yes. and and finding their own spaces is, is got to be really awesome too.
7: It is awesome. And thank you for mentioning the kids room because we do have story times happening every Saturday morning at 10-ish. Mm. It's usually like 10-10 that we get started because, you know, mom and dad need coffee. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, for, it's mostly targeted for ages like 1 to 6, mm. you know, like picture book, board book age kids yeah
3: that's mm-hmm. awesome yeah. rachel monica thank you so much for joining us today we appreciate it
7: thanks for having us yeah thanks for having us
3: and those arcs at large is matthew moore will be talking to more
0: owners of independent bookstores across the region over the next couple of weeks about what books they're reading and recommending to others this is 91.3 kuaf fayetteville fort smith bentonville and winslow contributors today included matthew moore and Jacqueline Froehlach. Our theme is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Thanks to you for being here and for continuing to support your public radio station, especially during this end-of-year season of giving fundraiser. You can make a contribution in the amount you choose that supports local, national, and international news around the clock around the year. Thank you, and make your contribution right now at supportkuaf.com. I'm Kyle Kellams. Have a great rest of your Monday.